This is Adam Hill, the minister of the Word at Rochester Church of Christ. I always tell our church family, read your Bible. You'll be a better Christian. My prayer is that this Bible-based sermon will help you follow Christ more faithfully. Let's learn together as we study the Word today. Good morning, church. Please remain standing as you are. We're going to read today from the book of Revelation with one S. (laughs) Just, you know, throwing that out there. Chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 4 and read through verse 6. The Bible says... Grace and peace to you from who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and set us free from our sins by his blood. And, was, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together and glorify you. God, I pray that today we seek the counsel from your word and the witness of Christ. I pray that you will help us to see him more clearly. God, bring us into your presence and by your spirit continue to transform us. Shape us so that we may be your people. God, you are so good. Your love endures forever. We thank you for this opportunity. Speak now, Father, for your children are listening. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Today, we're going to begin a study through the book of Revelation. When I announced this last year, because you need a little prep time (laughs) if you're going to do a series through Revelation. I announced this last year that we were going to be studying through Revelation, and I immediately had people simultaneously get really excited and then get kind of nervous and be like, okay, but why? And, 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 and I want to speak to why study this now. I want to assure you it is not because I have watched the news and discerned that we needed to put together the pieces now based on recent events as to what to do. Rather, I want you to know it is because I believe that in this prophecy for the ancient church, God has a word for this church today. And we have to ask ourselves, are we seeking the whole counsel of Scripture? We're much more comfortable in Paul's letters. We're much more comfortable in the Gospels. But a book like this makes us uncomfortable. And, 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 and even though we say, I hear people say, I'm just waiting on a word from the Lord. I'm seeking a word from the Lord on what I should do. I, I, I need you to know this. And I heard a pastor say this, and I really liked it. Obedience is even better than revelation. 
We will say, I want a word from the Lord, but I got to be honest, most of us won't do what he's already told us to do. So I'm not sure that we're really waiting for a word from the Lord, we're waiting for a different thing. Okay, obedience to the whole counsel of Scripture is part of what this church is about. Eugene Peterson, who is one of my favorite preachers and thinkers, uh, was preaching in a place called Tyler, Texas. Uh, and there in the Bible Belt, um, I heard it described as behind the pine curtain um, of East Texas, if you're, if you're familiar with that. He was in Tyler, Texas, and he wrote a letter to his son. And here's what he wrote. Why am I so uncomfortable in this world? And he, he didn't mean the world at large. He meant the Bible Belt. Why am I so uncomfortable in this world? They're all on my side. They're all courteous and affirmative. But listen to this part. But it seems to be gospel without depth, without suffering, without ambiguity. Everything smoothed out and ironed and with a lot of starch in the collar. I would hate for that to be the way that our family is described here at Rochester Church. And I think that this book in particular, Revelation, has been taken from us with bad teaching. And it's made us terrified of the future. But you need to know that for two millennia, these words have been meant to be inspiring and hope-giving. I'm going to tell you now, the locusts, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag a little bit, interpretively. The locusts in this book are not Apache helicopters. <laughs> and the vaccine is not the mark of the beast, however you feel about vaccination. That is, that is not a helpful reading of this particular text. This book is all about Christian courage. And the way, that, the way that John wants to communicate that is to show you Jesus. And that's what we're going to start with in chapter 1. We're going to look at Jesus revealed today. And I want you to start with me in verses 1 through 3. And I want you to look at the seer. This is, John's going to talk a little bit. He says, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> okay, if you followed that, there's like a little game of telephone happening. All right, the revelation from Jesus, which God gave him, so God to Jesus, to show his servants, and he made it known by sending his angel. So God to Jesus, to the angel, who then comes to John, who's then passing it on to us. Did you catch all that? Okay, so there's like four layers of revelation happening. All right, so, so here we go. Uh, who testifies to everything he saw that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Testimony of Jesus Christ. Do you think he means the testimony from Jesus Christ 
Or do you think he means the testimony about Jesus Christ? Y'all know me well enough. The answer is yes. (laughs) I love it. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what's written in it because the time is near. Blessed is the one who hears it as well as the one who reads it. Okay, this is likely because in that, in that time period, not everyone could read. And so what would happen is a letter would be written and sent to a church and it was someone's job to read the letter. And so you would say blessings to the reader, but also blessings to those who hear it. Okay, and so he's, he's saying, I hope you're blessed by this, not terrified. I hope you're blessed by this. Now, one of the things that I hope you notice is that, number one, the book of Revelation is a letter. It's a letter. We call them epistles when we talk about them in the Bible, but this is a letter. Look at verse 4, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to... That's, that is straight up Bible epistle formula. Formula. Just like it would say, Paul, to the saints in Galatia, grace and peace to... Right? Those are the, that, this is the same formula. Revelation is a letter. And it is, as a letter, that means it is written to a specific people in a specific time and a specific place. Now, now here's the deal. It is written for us, but that does not mean it was written to us. It was written to a specific people in a specific time and a specific place. Adam, why are you pointing that out? Because I'm going to pretty much take it as a general rule that it almost certainly cannot mean for us what it could not have meant to the people who received it. All right. (laughs) Say that again is what I got. All right. (laughs) This is important. I'm glad you called for it. I'm, I'm glad. It can't mean for us what it could not have meant for them. That it was written to a group of people 2,000 years ago to give them a word from the Lord that was supposed to give them courage and inspire hope. There is not a good chance that it meant nothing to them and couldn't be understood until Apache helicopters were made. (laughs) It doesn't mean for us what it couldn't mean for them. Okay, it is written for us, but it's not written to us. It's a letter. John testifies. He says, he says, this is, I'm testifying. That's a legal word. It has legal significance. It, it, it almost as if he's saying I'm being called in by God as a witness to God's people in what we call modern day Turkey, Western Turkey, Western Asia in the ancient Near East. And the seven churches that are going to receive mention and get their own letters, which we'll talk about next week, are real churches along a real important trade route that was the most important in the Eastern Empire at the time. These were churches at a crossroads. They were impacted by persecution. 
And the book of Revelation has a lot to say about giving people hope in the midst of persecution. And they were people who were being wooed towards lives of compromise in the face of the powers that be. So the book of Revelation is a letter. It's written to a specific people in a time and place. It's also a letter to a persecuted people. I could spend a lot of time talking about the history leading up to this. Unfortunately, I don't have the time to do that. And so I'm going to make it real oversimplified. A letter to a persecuted people. Here's a brief history in 65 CE. Okay, 65, Nero launches a widespread persecution against the church. The Roman Emperor Nero is an enemy of Christians. He's going to persecute Christians for two years. In 67, the Emperor Vespian comes to power. And, 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 and every Christian is thinking, we survived Nero. It has to get better. It did not. Vespian used to take Christians, dip them in tar and oil, and then light the way to his palace with them. So after three years of Vespian, we get 70. We get to 70 AD or 70 CE. 70 might be the darkest year in Christian history up to that point. If, if, you're, if, you're, if you're knowledgeable about what's going on politically, you know that Jerusalem is, is going to be sacked by Rome in 70. Okay, so the holy city is going to be sacked. But, but even more, there's some notable deaths that happen in 70. See if you recognize any of these names. Paul, Peter, and Timothy are all executed in the year 70. Those are three heavy hitters. The ostracism and the oppression continues until 91. In 91, there is an emperor that comes to power named Domitian. Domitian becomes emperor, and he is going to have a temple built for himself in Rome. Now, usually, the Caesars were worshipped, but most of the time, you were expected to wait until they died. Once they died, you recognized they were God on earth. Domitian doesn't want to wait. Like Nero, and like another guy named Caligula, which... <laughs> Side note means little boots. <laughs> we call him Bootsy. Um, but uh, Nero and Caligula did the same thing. But, but Domitian decides to build a temple to himself in Rome. And anyone who traveled into the city was expected to go into his temple, take some incense, throw it into fire, and declare Caesar is Lord. Boy, what a political climate. I mean, how do, you, how do you be the church in the midst of that? I mean, we lost our mind when they told us to put masks on. 
I'm just saying, like, I don't know that. A lot of people are like, we would have stood up. I don't know. I have my doubts. Pretty rough place. Think of the overwhelming pressure to ally with Rome. To benefit from Roman wealth and comfort and power and privilege. Instead, these churches have endured through 30 years of brutal persecution. The next thing I noticed about the, the book of Revelation is a letter. Second thing, the book of Revelation is a prophecy. Now, when I say prophecy, some of you start thinking that I'm talking about the future like Nostradamus would utter oracles about the future. That is not what the Bible determines as prophecy. Now, bear with me. I didn't say the Bible doesn't contain predictive prophecy. What I'm saying is when the Bible mentions prophecy, it does not necessarily mean it's predictive. What it means is that it's a word from God for his people. That there has been a revelation from God to give to his people. It's it's less about foretelling and more about forthtelling the word of God. Okay, that it's not, it's, not, it's not simply talking about the future. It's talking about thus says the Lord. Here is a word of God for God's people right now. And that word is a promise. It gives us a new way of looking at the world. Most of what we see in the world eats away at our hope and our belief. However, when we hear God's perspective... And we get to look at what God sees. It encourages us to trust that his justice will always prevail. Sometimes in the short term, but always in the long term. God's word is a promise, but also God's word is a demand. Because Jesus is a faithful witness then we know what it looks like to bear faithful witness. And that's what makes this book uncomfortable. Because as much as it's a promise, it's also a demand. Revelation is a demand. We know what a faithful witness looks like. It looks like Jesus. Now, in some parts of the world, faithful witness is being born in places where it is dangerous to do so. And punishment is regularly meted out mercilessly. I think in 19, okay, in 1953, Protestants in China numbered less than 2 million. Despite fierce government suppression, opposition, and oppression... There are now more than 60 million believers in China. In 1960, get this, there were 25 baptized Christians in Nepal. 25. I didn't say 25,000. I didn't say, I'm not talking millions. I'm talking about 25, like a little more than two dozen. That was 1960. For decades, Christians in Nepal have faced a six-year prison sentence for baptizing someone. You baptize someone, you can go to prison for six years. There were 25 baptized Christians in 1960 in Nepal. There are currently 375,000 baptized Christians in Nepal. There are people bearing faithful witness in the shape of Jesus 
in places where it is difficult to do so, where they are persecuted. Oh, I love you, church. By contrast, North American Christians have proved timid to witness to coworkers or neighbors in a place where they are free to do so. Revelation challenges our complacency. You see, here's a key point. Revelation is not good news for everybody. It should be. It's designed to be. But the reality is, Revelation terrifies those who are satisfied with things as they are. The more satisfied I am with things as they are, the more unsettled this book makes me. Because the third thing I'll say about it, Revelation is an apocalypse. It's a letter, it's a prophecy, and it's an apocalypse. The word apocalypsis means literally to unveil or to reveal. It is a revelation. And a major purpose of the book is to say that things are not what they seem. And in order to do that, the book employs a whole lot of images, a whole lot of symbols. There's crazy looking animals and monsters. There's symbolic numbers and colors. There is wild imagery and cataclysmic natural and supernatural events. One communicator said it this way, and I really liked it. He said, John used symbols in order to communicate that which cannot be expressed in any other way, not to conceal something that couldn't be said more straightforwardly. John doesn't use the symbols to make it complex and difficult. John uses the symbols and the imagery because it's the best way to say what he's trying to say. And while sometimes that makes it intimidating for us, for us readers who, who may have a little less of the imaginative aspect, I want you to, in some ways, be carried away a little bit by some of the symbolic, symbolism. Daryl Johnson puts it this way, imagery has the power to hook us deep inside. Images can quickly and effectively convey that which we struggle to put into words. Imagery goes beyond the intellect and through the emotions into the imagination, grabbing hold of us at the deepest recesses of our being. Or as Andy Stanley says, this is truth in a way that gets a hold of our guts. And it has two major purposes as an apocalypse. Apocalypses have two major goals. Here's what they're trying to do. One is anchor us in the present by revealing the unseen realities of our future. Okay, it's trying to make us stand firm, to help us stand and and be strengthened and take courage in the present by showing us what hasn't been revealed yet about our future, by revealing to us something about our future. Second thing it wants to do is it wants to anchor us in the present by revealing unseen realities of the present. Because the most terrifying thing to the devil is for a sleeper to become awakened. 
and to wake us up, John is going to show us some pretty wild things. And he starts with Jesus. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from from who is, who was, and who is to come. Who is, who was, and who is to come. From the seven spirits, or you may have sevenfold spirit before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Uh, You notice there's a lot of numbers going on in this book already with seven showing up. Seven's an important number. We'll talk about the numerology stuff later. Only have a few more minutes left. I want to work through what we have here. The one who is, who was, and then to come. Notice the order because it's important. The one who is, who was, and who is to come. Okay? Um, And I'm in verse 4. The one who is, who was, and who is to come. Okay, you notice which one of those comes first? If we were simply going to talk linear, we would say who was and is and is to come. Right? That would be chronologically the order we would put it in. Who was, who is, who is to come. As a matter of fact, if a student wrote me this sentence, I would say you might think about switching those. (laughs) And John looks at me and says, no, I don't think I will because I'm saying what I mean. Because for God, who is eternally present... Everything that has been and everything that will be is wrapped up right now in what is. To who is, who was, and who is to come. God is eternally present. The the it will be and the it was are always subsumed in the I am. Well, that's a pretty good sentence. You also notice where he is, he's on the throne, right? Oh, the sevenfold spirits before his throne. The sevenfold spirit, um, probably there's, there's some discussion over whether that means seven separate spirits or whether that means the Holy Spirit, the complete and perfect spirit, because seven is going to mean perfection. And I tend to think that it's the Holy Spirit. If I get to heaven and find out I'm wrong, I'm not going to ask to leave. <laughs> but I, I, I think that what he's doing is Trinitarian. I think that he's talking about the Father and Jesus and the Spirit. Okay? So I think he's, I think he's talking about that. But notice where the, the Lord is on the throne. And then he says, and, and, and I want to tell you about Jesus, who is, verse 5, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Three quick descriptions of who Jesus is. He's the faithful witness. He has testified and he has suffered for it, just like many of the people who are receiving this letter. He's the firstborn from the dead. That Jesus was the first one to be raised gives hope to those facing their own demise for his name. Because it guarantees their own resurrection. And he's the ruler of the kings of the earth, suffering under Caesar. They're reminded who was the king of kings. Who is the king of kings. Who will be the king of kings. The next thing he does is then talk about all the things that Jesus has done. Having described him in three ways, he's going to describe his work in three ways. To him who loves us, Jesus loves you. Second, and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Jesus loves you. Jesus has freed you from your sins by his blood. Amen. We're starting to hear the gospel. 
and verse 6 has made us to be kingdom and priests to serve his, his God and Father. He made us to be king, a kingdom and priests. We are mediators of the new covenant. He says to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look. He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Oh, this is exciting. With what great news for believers under fire. Behold, he's coming. Jesus is on the way. But even more, it's the way he's talking about it. He picks up threads from Daniel 7, 13, and 14, which we'll look at more later. Not today, don't worry. And Zechariah 12 and verse 10, where he's helping God's people remember that the Lord bringing vindication was promised to them long ago. And the promises that God made to his people back then are still in line for his people here and now. And then he gives in verse 8, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Do you notice, do you notice that he started and he ended with the same words, who is, who was, and who is to come? What's he trying to say to us? The point is God's eternality, that all of history is in his hands, even now. At the end of verse 8, he's called the Almighty. You see that word Almighty? That's the, that's the Greek word pantokrator. The Almighty. Now, you might not catch up on it, but that's a pretty important word. You might not catch it, but, but here's the deal. Get this. It means Almighty, but, but Caesar was called the autokrator. The Emperor. Do you know who ranks higher? between autocrators and pantocrators. The emperor of a region or empire or the almighty who rules everything. You see, he's, he's using language to let them know it doesn't matter who's Caesar, who's emperor in this time right now because God is the ruler and God will guide the course of history even after Caesar is dead and gone. And he says to them, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Three things that you get by being in Jesus. Did you catch that? Suffering. The kingdom. And patient endurance. Those are ours. Maybe it's not our job to try and escape suffering. Because it seems to be one of the three things that is ours in Christ. He says, I was on the island of Patmos... Because of the word God and the testimony of Jesus, he was not on vacation. <laughs> when someone's on the island, we're like, oh, he was having a good time. He was not. He had been exiled because of preaching the gospel. 
Because he proclaimed Jesus, he was sent to the island of Patmos, which was a prison island, about 40 or 50 miles east of Ephesus, by the way. And there he is on Patmos on the Lord's Day. Verse 10, on the Lord's Day, which would be Sunday, most believe, Resurrection Day. And he was in the Spirit. John is worshiping. Boy, there's a whole sermon right there. We are, I'll boil it down to this, we are apt to hear from God most clearly when it is His glory and His face that we are seeking. That devotion to prayer and worship often opens our hearts more fully to other aspects of the Spirit's testimony. And the church on earth, you read Revelation, and folks in heaven are always worshiping. Right? It is nonstop praise and worship happening again and again and again all over the place. They can't stop singing and chanting and saying and quoting. They're just going after it all the time. And, and I will tell you this, the church on earth is never closer to heaven than when we are offering God and the Lamb the glory they deserve. It is then that we experience a taste of heaven. And we find our hearts turned toward our heavenly king and find the strength to remember that the future world belongs to us. And he's instructed to write in verse 11 a prophecy to the seven churches in Asia. And, 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 and when he says, who is telling me to write this, he gets to see the speaker for the first time. He says, when I turned in verse 12, I saw the seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool and white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. That got weird fast. <laughs> we read something like that and we're like, all right, I don't know what that all meant, but okay. And this is where I'm telling you, don't, don't try and press it for everything to represent something else. Just think for a moment and be carried along by what he's seeing. What he's saying is, the one that I saw blew me away with his glory. That he was so great and so magnificent that I hardly have words to tell you about it that make sense. And so I'm going to describe to you what I saw. And even if you don't understand it, I just need you to know. For the second time he references Daniel 7, 13 and 14 where he describes one like the son of man. Who in Daniel stands before the ancient of days. And here he's saying, that's Jesus. He's wearing a robe and golden sash, recalling the prescribed outfit of the high priest. And he's got hair like white wool and blazing eyes and feet like bronze glowing in a furnace and face shining like the sun. His supernatural glory is pouring off of him and his voice is like rushing waters. He's holding seven stars. A double-edged sword comes from his mouth. These 
crazy features speak to his divine power. And the whole point is to try and emphasize the unspeakable glory of Jesus. But I want you to take one more look at verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, if you read down and jump to verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. Seven stars are the angels of seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Here's why I point this out. The first time we see Jesus in this book, Jesus is among the lampstands. Jesus is in the presence of his church. That whatever else is happening to them... We feel abandoned. We feel oppressed. We feel punished. We feel marginalized. We are hurt. We are being persecuted. We are being treated badly and we are being written off. We are being suppressed. We are being oppressed. We are being, we are being killed daily. Do not forget. Jesus says, do not forget that even though you feel over, underwhelmed and over, uh, overmatched, even though you feel under fire, forgotten, defeated, hunted, persecuted, wrongfully accused and imprisoned, marginalized and oppressed, hurt and weak and ready to give up, don't you ever forget that I am still with you. You keep your eyes on me. There is a, th th thank God for a king who doesn't give up on us. Now he's going to write letters to these churches. We're going to look at them next week. Five out of those seven churches are doing things very wrong. They're being corrected. Five out of the seven. So it's not that he's picked these seven all-stars. Jesus is in the presence of his people despite their needing correction. Despite their struggles to stay faithful. Thank God we have a king who doesn't give up on us. And he says, don't be afraid. And then he reaffirms his deity. I'm the first and the last. Okay, he's echoing the Alpha and Omega title. Jesus is saying, I am God. And then in verse 18, I'm the living one, once dead, but now forever alive. I hold the keys of death and Hades, he says. All of the claims of verse 18, by the way, involve Jesus' triumph over death. Can you go ahead and bring your team up? He's going to finish and say, I want you to write this down. I'm with you. In the midst of everything else, I'm with you. And what I want you to do is I want you to keep your eyes on me. That the first thing John had to communicate was actually not the words. The first thing John had to communicate was that he saw him. And when you see Jesus with you, 
you take courage. You find strength. You're lifted up. You keep your eyes on me. I have you. There is nothing in all of time that's going to take you from my hand. You're mine. I have you. Nothing can take you from me. You keep your eyes on me. Don't look away. You keep your eyes on me. To learn more about Rochester Church of Christ, check out www.rochestercoc.org. There you can find links to other teachings, opportunities to join our family and serve, as well as ways to support our work. It truly is a wonderful time to be the church. I pray that you're blessed. Remember, you are loved and you are chosen.